Well, welcome everyone to Eternal Leadership. I am Cheryl Scanlon and I'm here with your host, uh, John Ramstead, and I threw out the idea of giving you all the gift of actually turning the tables here. And instead of John hiding behind the interview questions and you getting to know all these beautiful people from across the globe that he has interviewed and through that has enriched your lives, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had an opportunity to get to know John himself? And so he graciously agreed to this interview. We've been friends for a long time, and I'm very grateful to be here with you today, John Ramstead. Well, thank you, Cheryl Scanlon. Yes, you have turned the tables. So <laughs> it's fun to, you know, I've done other podcast interviews, but I think this is going to be different. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And thank you for, you know, encouraging me strongly to do this because this is not how I, you know, normally do things. So I appreciate it. It is not, John. From the day that I first met you, you have always been about several things. You're always about the other person. You're always about a generous abundance mindset and you are about serving. And so I'd love for you to be thinking about as we do this today, that you are actually serving your constituency by allowing them to get to know you better. So thank you for letting us do this today. Yes, it's going to, I think this would be fun. Now, one of the advantages I have here is I know John pretty well. And so I can ask questions that perhaps a lot of people would not know that they could even ask. So one of those, you all know he has a book coming out. It's very exciting what's happening. But behind that book is a true understanding of resilience beyond what a lot of us have ever truly experienced. So John, I thought we would open with this concept of resilience. And mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of go back in time and ask you, where did you begin to understand and experience and kind of come face to face with this concept of resilience? Well, you know, as you're saying that, you know, the first thought that actually jumped into my head was in high school. Hmm. So I was not Catholic, but I was sent to an all boys Catholic military high school. My brother had gotten big time into the drug scene in the public high school that all my friends from middle school were going to, and my parents didn't want me to go there. Mm. And I went to this school, and I was a complete fish out of water. I literally had no friends. I was awkward. I tried out for baseball and got cut, and it was so horrible. Like, people made fun of me. And so here I am. Like, I hated going to school. I literally did. And my dad told me, Cheryl, like, you know, if you don't like it, you know, you don't have to go back. So at the end of my first year, I'm like, dad, I hate it. I don't want to go. I want to go to, you know, Burnsville High School. He goes, yeah, sorry, I was just kidding. So <laughs> I had to go back. Now think about this. This is a Army Junior ROTC. So by the time you're a senior, everybody in that Army Corps are officers, unless you are just a complete goofball outcast. I was not an officer my senior year. That was just every day walking around with sergeant stripes on my shoulders was honestly, as a senior, just embarrassing. And then I picked a military career. So was that to prove that I could do it or was it a passion? But, you know, there's probably a lot to dig in there. But I'll never forget, though, um, you know, just growing up, I just didn't have a lot of good relationships. There was just, you know, not a lot of that around. And I'll never forget I was at a youth group. I was very involved in my youth group, did have a, a few friends through youth group, 
but I'll remember the leader of the youth group. I said something to, I was very sarcastic and I said something I know offended him. I'm sure because I don't remember what I said, but he snapped at me and this is in front of the whole youth group. He said, Ramstead, you are such a jerk. No wonder you don't have any friends. Wow. And I, I was mortified. Right now we talk about right in coaching, tell people the truth in love. Well, that was the truth. And I'm sure that he said it somewhere in there with some love, but I got to tell you, that was a huge wake up call for me. And I realized that when I went, I was, you know, a senior, I was graduating. I realized that, you know what, I had to become a different person, a better version of myself, or I was going to be miserable the rest of my life. So I actually went to college and said, you know what, this is a chance to reinvent myself. I want to be the person that has friends, that enjoys life, that, you know, has people that wants to hang out with him. And it almost took like that whole shift. So I didn't apply to any college, I think within a thousand miles of my house. I think that I was in, grew up in Minnesota. I got into Cornell, RPI, and the Naval Academy. So everything on the East Coast. But yeah, I was out of there. But I think that's the first time I realized that, you know what? I mean, that's hard. I mean, people didn't know that, right? When you're alone, you feel like you don't have any friends and you're alone, but you have this huge desire. I remember when my next door neighbor, who was the most popular girl in school, and we grew up as friends, and she had a party and everybody was coming over and I was not invited. And I went to her and I said, hey, you know, there must be a mistake. She's like, yeah, no mistake. I remember being in my house, watching everybody show up and all these people that I knew going into her house and I was watching through the window. Wow. Right. So you can see what that does to your self image, to your identity. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, uh, and there's a lot more we could go into, but you know, you just start to see yourself as that person that's not likable, that you're an out, that there's something wrong with you almost. Well, and here's what's interesting, John, and I've seen this over and over again in your life. You had this definition of you that was being created both by you and people's perception of you and their response. And yet you made a conscious, willful decision to not let that define your future. You aggressively went after something else, something better, something new, something that was uncomfortable. And over and over again in your life, you have done this. You've always, wherever you are, before you hit that brick wall, you're like, "Eh, nope, I'm going to pivot again. And we're going to develop even further. What is that inside of you that says, I'm going after not just the gold, not just the platinum, but something that is even beyond a person's imagination that is available to all of us? Well, you know, sometimes I actually hit the wall. (laughs) Well, you have done that before. We know that. <laughs> well, you know, like what makes me think of one of the hardest things other than the accident was, you know, I'm in the military. I, you know, I make it all the way through. There's a whole bunch of stories in here about how I was able to do as well I did in flight school and graduate number one and get F-14s. And the answer that he's referring to is the book. So there's um, lots of great stories in there for you to read about. Yeah. And, you know, and that was some things my dad told me about mentorship. But imagine this, Cheryl. So, right, a seven-year career, I am all in. And I get a call, go see the commanding officer in a stateroom, which is usually not a good sign. Right? I'm like, oh, boy. So, I'm walking down there, like, with this sense of dread. And this was not a – he, he was a hard man, by the way, too, this guy. He was not, like, a, he was not a servant leader, Okay. <laughs> 
So I get in his stateroom, and what he tells me is, hey, John, I've, we've chosen you. You're going to be the one attending Top Gun for the Air Wing this year. And, oh, my gosh, I floated out of there. I didn't even know who to tell first. I didn't even know if I could tell. Like, this is a big deal, right? So yeah. the next weekend, Cheryl, I'm playing softball. We had a squadron team. We had a tournament come out. We just did a little practice, and we're doing batting practice, and somebody hits the ball, and I hear, watch out, and I look up, and the ball's coming straight at my face, and it hits me in the right eye and blows out the back of my right eye socket, and I have nerve damage. I have double vision. I lose my medical, and six months later, the Navy has separated me, and I'm out on the street in San Diego. The only job I could find was selling cell phones and I'm knocking on doors, hoping somebody's home to sell them a cell phone so I can pay my rent and I can hear the sound of my dreams are flying over my head, the roar. And I was absolutely, oh, I don't know. Suicidal is not the right word, but I was close. I mean, I, everything had just been ripped away from me. So how do you move forward? I got to tell you, one of the things that, like, at the time, I wasn't a believer, but what God brought into my life during that period of time that made all the difference, that just helped me. If you ask me, the one thing that helps me keep moving forward is this whole concept of hope. We can talk more about that, okay. right? Hope that maybe tomorrow could be better, even though I don't see it today. I don't believe it, maybe even today, but that hope, right, that it could be, there's a possibility. And during that period of time, I met a couple gentlemen that started mentoring me. And they were believers, but they didn't share the gospel with me. They just started, they saw, they met me at a networking event and realized, man, this guy's a train wreck. <laughs> I mean, I was honestly like, I was, I always put on a happy face. I'm going to make the best of it, right? I'm going to get through this. On but the they, outside. That's the outside. The inside was a different story. I honestly, my first year after getting out of the Navy, I think I had seven or eight jobs. Honestly, if people didn't have integrity, if they didn't, treat others well. I just quit. Like my wife would get home from work. She had a job and I'd be home already. And she'd be like, seriously again. I'm like, yeah, don't worry. I'll find something else. <laughs> like I was very unemployable at the time. A patient woman. <laughs> but you know, through this, these three gentlemen, Jeff Saavedra, John Brenner, Clark Schneekluth, if you guys are listening, I love you. They sewed into my life. They helped me figure out what I'm good at. What are your values? What are your passions? What could you do next? How do you recreate a dream? And as they helped me and they connected with me, they started sharing with me about their faith in different ways. And they started inviting me to attend church with them. And the first couple of times, I'm like, yeah, pass. Like, I was mad. I mean, I grew up in the church, but I'd never really connected to any kind of personal relationship at all. And so then I finally started going. And then, you know, we went to a church that would often have altar calls. So I'd stay for the teaching because it was John Maxwell. He was the pastor and he was amazing. And I loved him and he was entertaining. And then they do the altar call and be like, yeah, thanks, Jeff. Got to go. But one of those, I went forward. And I remember Maxwell even saying sometime, you know what? You have to connect with somebody before you pull. Mm. But I got to tell you, so if I look at what's helped me get through those things, through a lot of these adversities is a relationships with other people hope that, you know what, maybe I can change. Maybe I can have good friends. Maybe I could do something significant. Maybe I could graduate. Number one, I almost didn't go to flight school because we were told that one only because the top gun had just come out. I went into flight school in 1988. The movie came out in 86. So you can imagine the interest yeah. We were told, I don't know if this is true, but I remember somebody telling us that only one out of every 10,000 people that apply to get in is going to end up flying a fighter. 
So my initial reaction, just with everything in my path, I quit, actually. I did not apply, Cheryl. I actually decided I was going to go submarines. And I actually spent some time on a submarine. And I'm like, oh, boy, <laughs> that is not for me. But I had to make a choice in that moment. Do I bet on myself and take this risk that I could fail publicly, you know, get kicked out of flight school, not – or do I take a safe road, something I know that I wouldn't enjoy, but I knew with my skills and my engineering background that I could excel at? Yes. And in that moment, I chose to bet on myself. And I think that moment for me was a pivotal moment early on that has honestly helped me move through multiple different adversities that I've had to go through. Yes. And so part of this resilience that is just, it's a part of the fabric of who you are and your biographical account. It includes multiple pivots like this and the sheer force of will. But now you're peeling back the curtain. There was also an element of hope associated with this. And John, this generation that is coming up, they are so much along the lines of the existentialists. They don't really believe in hope. As a matter of fact, they think it's kinder to live without hope because then you can't be disappointed. What would you say to this generation? How would you speak into that for them? Hmm. What I would tell them is I, I've seen where that road goes. Hmm. And it was never more apparent to me, Cheryl, than after my accident, and I'm at Craig Hospital here. This was eight and a half years ago. And I'm on a floor. I was at a specialty hospital that just severe traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. And, you know, I was there for 20 months. I was a patient for 20 months. So I got to see people. And I watched where people with hope actually recovered. People had much more severe injuries and disabilities than I did and still have to this day. Like you look at Joni Erickson Tata, who's a quadriplegic, and she's one of the most vibrant, joyful people that you could ever meet. And you're like, well, yeah, but everything was taken from you. But that, right, it's a perspective. It's a context. And a, faith is a big part of that. But I also watched people who didn't have that hope. Because there is no status quo. When you go through life, you're either, if you're green, you're growing. And if you're ripe, you're rotting. Mm -hmm things just don't stay okay. I'm going to be this way and stay on a plateau. There's none of us are actually on a plateau. We're either getting better or we're getting worse. And I think that lack of hope, which leads to this self-talk about how we see ourselves, what our capabilities are, what our potential is. We start holding on to everything in the past, looking at decisions that were made with regret versus saying that is a decision I made, I would have made differently, but what could I learn from that? How is that going to help me inform me in the future? You can see there's these two different divergent paths. And here's the good news is, well, I watch people go down that road into a place of darkness that absolutely scared me. Those are people that I tried to spend time with and share with because I've been down that road. I'm not telling you I've gone through all these adversities and I'm like, man, I just rocked it. Like, no. And there's times after my accident, I'll just be honest with you, I was suicidal. I'm like, this is, this pain, God told me he was going to heal me, but this pain that I'm in day after day after month after month is not worth it. I remember planning the whole thing out. Like, how would I do this? Yes. But I couldn't leave my wife and my kids. 
Yes. And oh, by the way. But so I've been there in the dark places, but the good news is, is guess what? There's always a way back to a better place. So there's a couple things I want to highlight in this. The first is that there is no such thing as a status quo. Mm -hmm. And so if we are in a position where we're trying to control and manage our current state to preserve it, we're actually stealing life from ourselves and the people around us. Would you agree with that, John? I would agree with that. And then the second thing is there's always the opportunity for a better place. And I want to testify on behalf of John to this day, John is in a tremendous amount of pain on certain days. There are days when he wakes up and he doesn't know which side of the bed he's going to be getting up out of. There are times where he has fallen because of uh, severe dizziness and he's actually knocked himself in the head. He struggles with significant headaches. He is easily fatigued. As a matter of fact, even this interview is coming up after a very long day. So we're actually getting John at a really good time because he's tired. And I wanted you all to get to know the real John. And so as God would ordain it, we're getting him after a long day and he's tired. So this is perfect. I mean, he's even got sweat on his cheeks because he's pushing himself so hard on behalf of all of you. And so It sounds to me as you're talking about this, John, that hope has to be a choice, that Mm -hmm. this divergent path, we have to decide to hope. What helps a person decide to hope, John? Well, you know, part of it, you know, comes from especially, uh, you know, like at the accident, you know, I marvel at what, what God shared with me. The first thing that he said was all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. And I'll just be honest with you, because I, I didn't know when he shared that with me, that came from Romans. But I got to tell you, that gave me so much comfort, especially that hard period, to know that the God of the universe, who created everything, like think about how big that is, actually cared about me as a person. Like I never understood that before that moment. That, you know, I always kind of saw God as like the commanding general, right? He's up on the hill. He gives orders. He's got your back. He loves you. But you don't go up and say, oh, I had a fight with my wife. Can I have a hug? Right? In the military, I wouldn't go to my commanding officer and say, yeah, can I have a hug? Like, what? No. You know, go do your job, you know? But to realize that somebody asked me, Cheryl, you know, when God was standing there next to me and I was in his presence and I, and I remember the love was like this emanating. It was like these waves of energy made out of pure love. Like if I start thinking about it too much, I will absolutely get emotional because I remember the first thought that crossed my head, my brain, I didn't even know how bad my body was crushed was, I am not worthy of somebody loving me like this. And this is the God of the universe. And I just want to share with everybody listening. I'm not special. If you're listening, he loves you equally. And he loves all of us. He created us. And he said, all things work together for good. And as I started reading scripture, which I hadn't before, he said, you know, rejoice in your tribulations. And I'm thinking about Paul who just got beaten and caned and whipped. And I can't even imagine the jail cell that he's in. And they start like, hey, he was with what Silas, right? It's like, hey, why don't we uh, throw down a couple of praise songs? I'm like, what? So, and they start worshiping, and God blows open all the doors. 
instead of running out of there like, yoo-hoo, like God sprung us loose. No, what did they do? They wouldn't leave because they know if they did, the guards guarding them would be killed. And I just think of, of what other people have gone through in that I've known in person in this time and, you know, things that are in scripture. I'm like, you know, even what I go through compared to, it's honestly nothing. I mean, I'm here. I get to be a dad. I get to be a father. All the pain and all the other stuff that I have to put up with is for me just, it's not even a price to pay. It's like, I'm thankful that I have that so that I get to have relationships with you, get to serve our community, get to be a husband, get to be a father. So I think it's about finding those things, right? How do we actually in the difficult times, you know, something that might help people who are going through adversity right now, remember it because at the accident, Dr. James Dobson gave my wife a book that he wrote called When God Doesn't Make Sense. And there's a lot of times in our own, you know, in our present, our circumstances, our understanding, how we view ourselves, it doesn't make sense. And it might never make sense. But that's when honestly choosing to trust God that it is going to work together at some point for good, even if I might never see it. And then making a choice to say, you know what, I'm okay with that. That's powerful. I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with that because he has shown you how much he loves you. Mm-hmm. He loves you with that everlasting love. Now, John, you've mentioned a couple times your role as a husband and your role as a dad. And, and I don't know when this recording will actually be played, but we're in a season of COVID and shutdowns and businesses being turned cattywampus. And it's a tough time in our world. And there is a great level of despondency. And just even last week, I was texted by someone whose brother was about to kill himself and leave his wife and his children. And fortunately, he got help and he got to the other side of this deep, deep, dark despair. His family loves him and they would have missed him so much. And I know you were experiencing those suicidal tendencies as well for a short time. And, and not anything, your children and Donna, nobody could have pulled you out of that in and of themselves. Something deeper and more powerful had to do that. Would you just talk to that for a moment for those who might be really on the fence and starting to entertain these suicidal ideations? Yeah, we did. I'll put a link in the notes for this. We did two different live streams on this, Cheryl. A, from the perspective is, hey, what if this is something you're struggling with? Because what happens is you have this normal, healthy brain chemistry, and then you have stress, or maybe you're drinking or doing drugs or, you know, and a big thing, especially in the Christian community that adds to this is guilt and shame, because Mm -hmm. now we don't want to talk about what we did. And all of a sudden that leads to stress and that can strip away some of our good brain chemicals. And then we get to anxiety. So if you're having trouble sleeping, you're feeling anxiety, you're having panic attacks. These are red flags that you know what, you need to reach out and get help. If you're thinking about suicide, you're planning things. And you know, here's what I did. I realized, you know what, I'm not in a healthy place. And I reached out and I told Donna, And I said, I need to go see somebody. So we found a Christian psychologist we got referred to, and I started meeting with them. I had a neuropsychologist part of my treatment team after the brain injury. They're obviously very concerned about this when they're dealing with brain injury because a brain injury that like I had actually induces severe depression. Mm -hmm. When you damage the front left lobe, 
I know you've struggled with Lyme's disease. I don't know if it, it has a, some similar effects, but they had me on antidepressants just because they know when the brain is injured, physically injured, it induces the chemistry that creates the depression. Now, guess what? You can have that exact same thing happen to your brain because of things that either exist in just who you are, and there's nothing wrong with you. This doesn't, and this is a problem in the Christian community, Cheryl, right? A lot of us think that, you know, if we have depression or we're struggling with anxiety, you know what? We have unrepented sin. We're not praying well enough. Like, no, guys, if you get thrown off a horse and you get thrown into a fence and you need to get, you know, a bone fixed, you go see a doctor. If you're struggling with mental illness, you need to go see a doctor. Trust me, it is what they do. And there's this stigma, unfortunately, that we have. And then the second live stream that we did was, what do we do as parents, as friends, as, as people in the community? How do we recognize when somebody else just really needs help? And there's a couple great, you know what, the suicide prevention hotline mm-hmm. is one. You can call and talk to somebody. There's another one we interviewed, uh, this amazing woman, Shanice, who's the head of the crisis text line. So if you guys just want to Google crisis text line, you can do this in the privacy of your own room. You can do it sitting on the couch where nobody has any idea what you're doing. And you can text a trained counselor who can help you right there through your phone on text completely privately. But what I would tell people is, you know what? If you're feeling this stuff, there are so many people that are trained that won't embarrass you. They won't shame you. They will listen. They won't judge you because guess what? They've been there themselves and they've helped so many people through the exact same things, things that are beyond probably anything you've done. Trust me, because I've heard a lot of the stories as we've gotten involved in this. So I would just encourage people that, you know what, you got into this jam all on your own and let's not have the bravado or the pride thinking you can get out of this on your own. Because what I have found is I can't. Wow. Yes. So that is a wonderful pivot point around the ego. I met with the founder of Wellwin, who helps executives who are dealing with drug or some other chemical addiction. And what he talks about is the source of all of these addictions is our ego. And, you know, we feel like the bravado, we should be able to do it on our own. We have to do it on our own. Why can't we do it on our own? And all that does is dig a bigger pit for ourselves. Now we get to the other side of it. You're out of the pit. You're living this great life. Your family is unbelievable. You have a family business that is thriving. You are internationally renowned as a speaker. You have talked to and rubbed shoulders with some of the most beautiful souls in the world. Mm-hmm. What keeps... John's egos check in check now as you live this new life. Literally, God has planted your feet on solid ground. He has restored what the locust has eaten. He has made good come out of all the potential evil because you called upon the name of God and he made good from evil. So where is John now? And how does John stay in the same beautiful, humble place in the midst of such amazing success and opportunity that's in front of you. So before the accident, right? There's almost like the, you know, before before and after, after, right? (laughs) My goal, you know, think about that identity growing up, right? The kid that wasn't popular, that wasn't good enough, that couldn't do it, right? My motto back then, and I was proud of it, is I might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but I will outwork anybody. And I love the recognition and, 
looking back at it now, what I was trying to do was be the king to get recognition. And as I went through this whole process and God really showed me and gave me a calling and a mission, that role changed from being a king to being a kingmaker. And he put me, and this is what I believe, and you know, is I did that deep work, and that's what the book's about. You have to slow down to answer some very important questions. And here, here's the three that I think we all, if we spend time in, would serve us so powerfully is A, who is God? Right? What is that true north that we have? Not who we are, but who did God create us to be? And where are we today when we look in the mirror relative to who God sees when he looks at us? And how do we start working on closing that gap? And that's this process of transformation. That's the process of becoming the best or a better version of ourselves. And then the third thing we have to answer is where do we want to go? Now, I always used to get those backwards. I wanted to answer what's my calling? What should I be doing? You know, that's going to lead to the most success, the most income, right? That's where I focused. And I realized I got it backwards. And then even after my accident, sure, I was just, what should I be doing? Like it was like this tension. Yeah. Like, what's next? Yeah. yeah. And then as I let all that go and I started reading the word and seeking to understand God and understand who I was, the coolest thing happened. Like the mist cleared on what I should do on that calling and all that purpose. And it became to me abundantly clear. And I wasn't even focusing on trying to answer that question at the time. And that's a big part of what I share with people. But I think, you know what, when we can work on those three areas, what was your original question? I, I went on this tangent. Oh, no, this is great. That's sort of the seek God and the rest of these things would be added unto you, right? That's what's happening. Yeah, 100%. Here. The original question is how does John keep his ego in check and stay in this humble place in the midst of success? Yeah, so how I think, right, is it's not about me. I'm a steward of this. Like, you know, we built, or I shouldn't say we, when I first started this, and this was a whole new thing right here. So seven year, eight year, well, this is before you and I met, sure, when I decided to become a coach. I'd basically been out of work for two and a half years, 23 surgeries. I'd been completely wiped out financially. I'd had no income and literally seven figures and bills come in. I mean, we were zeroed out financially at 48 years old. My network was completely dormant. I couldn't work. I could work eight to 10 hours a week at the time. I tried to get back to work at my old company and my partners were amazing. But after like nine months of me working eight to 10 hours a week, they're like, yeah, what do you think, John? How long are we going to try this? I mean, they were being so nice. They're amazing people. I'm like, yeah, this isn't working out, is it? I'm like, well, I'm like, well glad you said that. So I decided to start a company. I had no money. I had no health. I had no network. And I had eight to 10 hours a week. And what, I, what God put on my heart is that partnering with the father, I can do more in eight to 10 hours a week than I ever did as an entrepreneur in 80 or 90 hours a week. And honestly, Cheryl, that's what's happened. I think because I know that I'm in partnership with the Father and everything that I have, I'm just stewarding for a brief period of time for him. And there's times I drift away from that. There's time, but I got to tell you something, like I really resisted getting into public speaking because I thought that would feed my ego and move me back toward being, you know, a little more me-centric, egocentric, like you talked about before. And I was really struggling with, should I do more speaking? And I remember uh, Billy Graham died. And I was watching this memorial tape, and here he is, 
in a stadium with hundreds of thousands of people going down, you know, a parade and the streets are lined, hundreds of thousands of people. And he is just so joyful. And what God showed me is he was always there as my servant. He was there as my ambassador. And that's how he could have so much joy. It was never about Billy because Billy showed up as my ambassador. What's an ambassador, right? He is a sovereign, you know, agent. You're an agent, a commissioned agent of a sovereign nation. And then I, that's how I started seeing my role. And then I realized, you know what? I can go speak and I can share whether it's a corporate audience or it's or to a church group or it's to the U.S. military. And I go in there with what God wants me to share. And I know that if I get recognition, that is a reflection of the work that God just did through me. And, you know, and also I always have a wingman. I'm always sharing with people. We're praying before I go into whether it's corporate environment or not. I have people around me. I've developed those relationships. This is stuff you and I have talked about. Yes. So, you know, I think it's something you do need to be conscious about. But if God's given you a skill, let's say to speak or to share or whatever it is, to do something, and you're not doing it, let's say you're standing there like, you know, it says your word is like a lamp unto my feet. And I have this little picture of a boy in this dark, scary looking forest. The light's only showing a few feet around his his feet, right? Just a small circle. And I imagine myself coming to a Y in the road. And if I just stand there trying to make a decision, right? God wants me to go left, but I kind of want to go right. Or I know if I go left, it's out of my comfort zone, or this is going to stretch me. And I know if I go down this road, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if I just stand there and I just stand there, what am I doing with what he's given me to steward? It's like the person that buried the shekel. Wow. And sometimes just being in a place of indecision. Now, sometimes you need to be in a place to sit there and reflect and grow. I think there's that time of waiting on the Lord. But a lot, Well, I don't want to say this for anybody else. I have used that as an excuse sometime to actually not move where I need to go. Yeah. There are five things that I've written down here that you okay. said as a summary around you know, we've talked about the darkest and the deepest valleys, right? The pit that the scripture clearly says that God's hand is not so short that he cannot reach down and pluck you out of that and be a lifter of your countenance. And we've spent some time talking about that. And now we're on the other side where we're at the mountaintop, right? And we have these vista views and, and John's feet back on solid ground. And, and yet if that ego is not in check, that brick wall is waiting. The proverbial brick wall is waiting. And John knows that. And so these are five things that I want to highlight that he has said. It all starts with a sense of partnering with the Father. Mm -hmm. So there's a declaration in that, that there's a dependency on the Father, independent yes. of what does or does not happen. The second is, so that's his position, is his partnership with the Father. His role is a commissioned agent as an ambassador. So he's no longer representing the country of John Ramstead. He is representing the, the kingdom. kingdom. That's right. right. And then as part of that, to keep him humble and to help John slow down, he's always got a wingman, right? So he's not out there alone. He's got those that are helping to raise his hands or helping to shoulder the burdens. Fourth, John recognizes that God typically is going to challenge John's status quo. Because God is very interested. He is the great comforter, 
but he has no interest in making us comfortable. And status quo is the equivalent of comfort, com mm -hmm. you know, being comfortable. And so John recognizes that as part of the ego, if I'm in a place of self-preservation, of course I'm going to want the status quo because I know how I feel. I know what I look like. I know what I can predict. I, 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 right? But when I'm moving into this place where the status quo is challenged and God keeps moving, then I'm recognizing and needing to continue to depend upon this partnership. And finally, what is the energy? What fuels this partnership as an ambassador? It's motivated by the desire to be a steward, mm -hmm. a steward of that which God has given to John. John, thank you. Mm, thank you, Cheryl. Yeah. So I had a few more questions. Are you completely worn out or do we, should we end there? or, or there? No, let's keep going. This is kind of fun. Okay. So if, you know, we can always cap it with that, but I want to share, I have a few more things. So John, you know, this is kind of an age old standard interview question, but I, I really want you to take it to heart. And I want you to go a little deeper with this. You've shared a lot of your stories. You've shared your struggles. You've admitted that you've had fights with your wife. You've told us that you were suicidal. You've been a complete abysmal failure. All these things. What is it that you still want us to know about you? I mean, you're very introverted, John. It can be hard for those things to come out. So what is it that we need to know about you today? I don't know how to answer that question, Cheryl. I know it's a tough one, but I'm keeping it on the table. I'm not taking it off the table. <laughs> what do you want us to know about you? <laughs> so, no, remember we started this interview by saying the table <laughs> See, I'm doing this to give myself time to think. You can take some space. I think this, that, you know what? I guess here's a simple message. I think it's not just about me, but I think maybe to make it relevant to everybody out there that, you know what, that life is hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, this time that we're here, and one of the things that I always have to, like my dad just passed away. I was talking to a friend about this the other day. He was one of my closest friends in the world. He was 92. But I got to be in God's presence briefly, so I know what my dad is experiencing and I have not had these big waves of grief that I thought I would have, Cheryl. Mm. I miss my dad terribly, but I know what he's experiencing. In this time here relative to eternity, right? And I don't have the answers, but this is what prepares us for what's next. And I think that for me, I think that I guess what I want people to know about me, it's taken a long time to get to a place where I've really understood who God is as my father, as my friend, right? Somebody asked me at the accident, you know, how would you describe God as he was standing next to you? And I'm like, wow, nobody's asked me that before. Mm. And I said, a friend. And I looked up friend that, you know, I was just starting to really get back in the Bible. And I looked up friend in the Bible and Jesus said, I want to call you friend because a friend knows his master's business. Think about that. The God of the universe, he's sitting up in the throne room. I want you to think about this. Think about this. What if you right now, you got transported up to heaven and you're peeking in the throne room and the whole host of heaven's there and there's the father and he's just like so bright, you can't even see him right in the middle and right next to him and his right hand is Christ. And what would you do? 
Like, you know what I was thinking? You know what I do? I'd like peek around the corner. I'd be like, try to look like, wow, this is crazy. And then Jesus catches your eye. Like your best friend. He's like, John, come up here. I saved you a seat right next to me. Because that's the promise in scripture. And I got to tell you, when I step into doing my prayer, I picture myself in that throne room on the right hand of Jesus as he's on the right hand of the Father, just having a conversation. And I think what I'd like people to know is, you know what, I've been, oh my gosh, I've, I've had to start over so many times. We, we only even touched on a couple, right? Like I'm one of those guys that, you know, can coach you because, but you might not want to take business advice from me. No, I'm kidding. Kind of, you know, like we built a company, you know, I got out of the military, started the company with my friend. We grew it. I had, I was worth millions on paper and then 2000 hit and we were wiped out 90 days. It was gone. I'm like, seriously again. Uh And then I built another company and then the telecom crash hit. So then I went to wall street and then 2008 hit. Like I'm not very good at timing trends, Cheryl. (laughs) Okay. So some of my friends are very good at timing trends and they don't have to work anymore, but think about that. I'm just, let's just be really honest at my age. I know that if I had made a few different decision points along the way, I'd be like some of my friends that are retired today yeah. or I'd have better relationships with certain people or I hadn't, you know, a company would have gone in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Like what if I just stayed when I got injured in the eye and the Navy offered for me to get out, this is something that's been, was really hard for me to reconcile, Cheryl. They said, you can wait, this might get better, but we don't think so. So I got out of the Navy after six months. Do you know three months after I got out, the double vision went away? I did not know this. And I tried to get back in and their drawdowns are like, no, sorry, you're out. When you're out, you're out. And if I had stayed in, I would have continued my career, which was my passion at the time. So I guess here's something for people to know about me. And it's taken a lot of work. And if you just did this, if you just take a big piece of paper Lance Walno did this with me and he had me draw a big line. You know, you take the paper long ways, right? What's that uh, horizontally, right? And you draw a line through the middle and you go all the way back to the earliest thing you can think of. And I want you to think about this from spiritually. Where were you? Where were your highs? Where were your lows? What was happening in those transition points? What, What led you from a high? Why did it drop down to a low? And how are they relevant to each other. Is this one lower than this one? I had to think about all these and why. And as I looked at all that, I was asked a question. Do you look at those lows from a place of, does it cause you uh, fear, regret, anxiety, concern? Is it an anchor that's holding you back? Are these places that you're looking at as treasures that God has put in your past that have equipped you for the present? And when I first looked at that, I realized so many of those were not treasure chests. They were landmines. And it was a process to go through and share with people and be real and share things that were embarrassing, uncomfortable. But God says, when you share with somebody else, I will heal you. There's an element, right? I mean, there's a lot of if then state. When you see if in scripture or therefore, You need to really pay, you can't just pick the after and say, okay, I'm going to focus on that and pray for it. And I think, I guess that's something for people to know about me is it's been really uncomfortable to be extremely vulnerable and authentic with people who I love and care about, Mm -hmm. but also probably one of the most rewarding things 
and it's still something I'm working on. So I, I think maybe that's something to, to share. Yeah, so that, you know, that passage, if we confess our sins one to another, he is faithful to heal us, right? So that's that humbling that we're even talking about before with the ego. John, you've said so many beautiful things here. I want to highlight a few of them, all based on the question of, can you share something with us that we don't already know? And it was really about your relationship with your father, your heavenly father. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting how you tied the relationship with your earthly father and just how beautiful a relationship that was. And then how you grew in time before and after that in your relationship with your heavenly father to the point where he became a true friend. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about in the scriptures is from Ephesians, where we are positioned in Ephesians chapter one, at the end of the passage of the chapter, it talks about how God is seated on the throne, just like you said, and Jesus is seated at his right hand. And what it says is he's seated far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and every name, every name that is in this age and the age to come. By the way, that includes all the names that we call ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. All the names we've called ourselves over time. And we who are his body are also above all power and rule and dominion and name and age that is in this age to come. So here is John, as well as all of you whose lives are hidden in Christ. You are seated above all of that. That's how close you are to the Papa. Mm -hmm. And then the final thought to this is he began the whole time with saying the statement, life is hard. And with Lou now, he actually stretched out the timeline of his little dot in the context of eternity with all the highs and the lows and began to convert all those landmine lows into treasures because God clearly says that our momentary light afflictions, no matter how long momentary, no matter how hard light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. And John knows this. John knows this. And of all the messages that we've been talking about today, if that is something you could grab hold of today, there is a purpose for the suffering. There is a reward that comes through the pain. And there is a Papa that walks with you in this and is saying, come over here. You can come get a hug for me when you have that fight with your wife. Mm -hmm. You can tug at my shirt tail when you're feeling insecure and vulnerable. Throw away the bravado before your papa. He doesn't need it. He knows who you really are. And that's that vulnerability that you're talking about, John, that you're still working on. So in summary of this, the vulnerability is not an easy place for you to go, but you feel like it's an important place for you to go. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I think, you know, when we share and we're vulnerable to somebody else, it gives them permission, mm -hmm. right? Because so many of us, we just have so many walls up. It doesn't feel safe, but all of a sudden, you know, I'll guarantee you, many of you have experienced it was, you know, think about some of those people that you really, really trust. Yeah. And, and they've maybe, you've maybe heard them share from a place like, wow, they went there. Yeah. What does that do to you? It gives you permission. Yeah. So what if I start, that's what I hope is, right? If I can, you know, share some of the things that have been really hard and uncomfortable for me, like recovering from the accident. You know, God told me the accident, Cheryl, he was going to heal me. Yeah. But then I was in the hospital for 
two years and I had surgery after surgery after surgery. And I had a brain injury and my emotional centers were compromised. I literally hurt the people around me because yeah. I didn't have any f emotional filters. I would scream and yell and swear at my kids for raising their voice because my brain couldn't concentrate. Yeah. And I hurt them. And I didn't know at the time there was no feedback loop. And I remember, I'll never forget, this is, you know, something, uh, this is a year and a half after the accident. And I was listening to Henry Blackaby talk about spiritual strongholds. And he said, one of the biggest strongholds is that you're mad at God. And guess what? He already knows, but you won't admit it. Because I, I knew he saved my life, Cheryl. Yes. But I couldn't admit that I was mad at the person who saved my life because yeah. of all this stuff I was going through because it's not what I expected. Yes. And I'll never forget realizing that. Getting on my knees. Saying, God, I'm mad. He's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> But I, I'll never forget the going into my son, who I know I affected the most, and being on my knees. I'm like, Michael, will you forgive me? I'm so sorry. It's been so hard. We sat there, Cheryl, hugging for like 20 minutes, just both weeping. He was only, my little buddy is 14. But through all this, our relationships have been completely restored. He got a, a girl pregnant in high school. If I hadn't worked on restoring that relationship, if God hadn't worked on restoring that relationship and redeeming our family through this mess that we went through, you know, I've walked with them now every step for the last two and a half years. And even before our grandson was born, they kept the baby. So yeah, we're going to go through some stuff that's not fun. But here's what I know. And people ask me, did God cause the accident? I don't know. I don't think he did. But guess what? Nothing. Did it ever occur to you guys that nothing occurs to God? So he knew it was going to happen. He was there when it happened. Could he have prevented it? Yes, he could have. That was also going through my head. But here's what I realized going through all this is, you know what? God does not promise us an explanation. But what he does promise is to love us and to walk with us through everything. So yeah, some of it doesn't make sense to me and still doesn't. I'm seeing now though, with hindsight, a lot of the stuff I've gone through, Cheryl, I've been able to help people, coach people, have conversations with people that I would have never, ever been able to help had I not gone through that. The person I am today, the husband, the father, the friend, who I am today, the relationship I have with the Lord is not the person I would be had I not gone through that. So I know you can't go back and say, well, would you have prevent the accident from happening? So it's an easy answer to say, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, you know, but the truth is, honestly, if I could go back and say, John, you have a choice right now to get on that horse or not. This is your path if you get on the horse and this is your path if you don't. I truly believe in my heart, Cheryl, I would get on that horse because of my life today. Even though it's very different, I don't have all the things that I would have had. I mean, that company that I was at, by the way, took off. Everybody who was part of that company, if I had stayed there, if I hadn't gotten on that horse, has been phenomenally successful if you want to look at things from a financial standpoint. But guess what? I've seen every step of the way from my health to our finances to our family, the faithfulness of God and his promises in everything. 
So am I where I want to be right now? No, and I think it's okay to not be in a place of what I call smoldering discontent. That's where I was before because I was so disconnected. But I think it's okay to be happily discontent. That I feel joy in the present, but I'm not going to settle for where I'm at because that, like you said before, that would be choosing to stay on the plateau. Yes. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes such sense. And here was another pivot, John. So thank you so much for going there with us today. And here you are in this angry place. And what did you do in that angry place? You have a little Kleenex on your eye there. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there you go. And so you did this. You turned to God with your anger. I did. You didn't turn away from God. You turned to God. That's the difference, John. And that's, if we could learn how to do that, he will respond to us because he does love us. He does love us. The Kleenex is still on your face. (laughs) <laughs> on the right side. That's because I haven't shaved. So it, no, know. it's right under your eye. There you go. You got it. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> that story about Michael is very powerful. You, um, God is faithful to the humble. He says, a broken and contrite heart I will not despise. And you allowed yourself to be broken before the Father. And to be poured out. And you're doing that now, John. This is your ministry through eternal leadership, through beyond influence. It is the pouring out of John Ramstead. Yeah. And, you know, in scripture, it says God blesses those who mourn. It's okay. Yeah. To mourn, to mourn relationships, to mourn passings of loved ones, to mourn what's happening in this world right now, to have a heart. I guess, you know, if we wrap up, what I would really encourage people to do is, what we're seeing in the world right now, the body of Christ has not been, you know, God has called us out of the stands and to get on the field and to play the game and play the game hard. And we have not done that. I mean, you, you think about who has influence. I mean, if you look at the mainstream culture right now, you know, the body of Christ is an afterthought. And I honestly believe in my heart that this country as a beacon of light in the world that we've been since we started, regardless of some of the things that have happened. But I mean, you look at the gospel, you look at unchurched people groups who've never seen the gospel, never read it. If you look at the source of all that, over 80% of that has come from funding from the U S people that have been sent from the U S or organizations from the U S organizing that like we're this beacon of light. And regardless of who gets elected, a certain political leader or ideology is not going to change this inevitable crash into irrelevance. And I really feel like we're close because of what's happened in our culture. But God said that if we acknowledge him, that if we pray, that if we turn from our wicked ways, that he will hear our prayer and heal our land. And I think it's the most important thing we can be doing right now is praying in unity, looking at those things that God has put on our heart, 
right? Think about how Jesus taught us to pray. We've all memorized the Lord's Prayer. It's almost, you know, just something we rip through. But when the disciples said, God, how do we pray? You know, Jesus, teach us how to pray. That is a model for prayer that is one of the most powerful things in Scripture. You know, our Father, who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. I want everybody to think about this. Thy kingdom come and thy will. Like, we need to be praying for God. This has been a shift for me, Cheryl, not to reveal his will for John. Like, what should I do? My prayer right now is, because God showed me this when I was reading about Moses. What is God's will in the world? See, God's will wasn't for Moses to come in, right? God's will wasn't for Moses to come cross back across the desert and, you know, read a rebellion. God's will was to free a nation. And he went to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to join me in what I'm doing in the world. And it might sound like a subtle shift, but for me, this is my prayer. God, show me, reveal your will that's happening in the world. And then show me what I need to do to join you in that. And I'll tell everyone right now, when that happens, you're going to be stretched. You could have a serious crisis of faith. Like, who am I that I could lead a movement? Who am I that I could go free a nation? Who am I that I could go release women in the sex trade from bondage? There's a woman that I met recently who started Hookers for Jesus And she is doing unbelievable work. And she started out a few years ago as a junkie who was owned by a pimp. And she has now released more women from bondage and discipled them and released them than anybody I personally know of. And when so she first had this on her heart, what do you think went through her mind? Like, uh uh-uh, not me. Are you kidding me? I have this and I'm owned and I'm hooked on drugs and I do all this and this is what I do for a living and... I mean, I'm the bottom of society. So, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. That is that is not some future thing. That is a present tense, how God, Jesus taught us to pray. God is moving. He has plans. I feel that right now, today, and the evidence is out there, and we could do a whole other podcast, that there is an awakening, a great awakening, Cheryl, happening right now. There is revival happening. What I think is going to happen is there is this going to be this transformational desire, this hunger to be in relationship with Jesus that people don't even understand. They won't even know what to do with, but it's happening. But if you look historically, and any awakenings, revivals, or transformational events in history where God has gotten involved. Persecution comes. Well, persecution comes, but it's always been preceded by the body of Christ coming together and uniting in prayer. Um. We need to be praying. We need to be moving out of our comfort zone and getting involved and doing something. Going to work, coming home, and paying our bills. I mean, how many of us, like I was convicted. Somebody asked me, how many of your neighbors have you ever had over for dinner? We've been here for a year. Two. How many neighbors around me do I just even know their names? Four. There's 10 houses around us. So we made it a point to, you know what? Why don't I just get to know the people that I live around? Right? It doesn't mean that, you know, anyway. I go back to something you said, John. Those three names of those men 
who discipled you without ever using the name Jesus at first. And when you said their names, there was such a sacredness to the way you said that. Can we just hear their names again? Well, and I, I want to share something because they changed the whole trajectory of my life. So my wife and I a year ago went back to San Diego and we spent and we all, we had a reunion to thank them and we bought them dinner. It was Jeff and Annette Saavedra, John and Angie Brenner and Clark and Sherilyn Schneekluth, a teacher, an attorney and an orthodontist. And they changed my life because they took their eyes off themselves and took their time away from their family to spend time with some knucklehead who they had just met. I first met Jeff and he introduced me to John and John, John was amazing. Like I got out of the Navy and I was getting into business. I didn't even know how to dress. John was a lawyer, right? Do you know that he brought me down? It wasn't my dad. It was this guy, John Brenner. He brought me down to buy my first suit. I will never forget that day. He taught me what kind of suit, how to tie a business tie. You know, I could do a military tie. I knew the knot. He goes like, no, that's not how you want to tie a. And here's how you take care of your suit. Here's how you take care of your tie. Here's you take it off every night and you hang it up. Right. I mean, you know how busy attorneys are. He took, we went to lunch and he took me clothes shopping and I only met him. I mean, I still remember that. It was 30 years ago, Cheryl. Yeah. I could tell you stories about all these men. And we've, Jeff and I, you know, he just had uh, heart surgery. Mm. You know, we've stayed in touch this whole time. But it's amazing when we, you know, what if it's just one person and you're that person? That's, I guess that's something going through this, Cheryl, is that the person I want to be is that person that somebody looks back on and goes, you know what? I'm so glad I knew him. Like how I feel about Jeff and Annette and John and Clark and Angie and Sherilyn and Jimmy and some of these people in my life. You, sure, I look at you like that. You came into my life when I needed help. And Chris McCluskey and I mean, there's so many people, right? And I don't want to be that person if my accident had happened eight years ago and today people are like, who was that guy again? Oh, what a bummer. Like, how's his wife doing? What was her name? Uh, well, anyway, you know, hey, how's business, right? I think that's how the conversation this far out. Versus saying, you know, 30 years later, you know what? And here's the cool thing is every single one of us has the ability to be that person to at least one other person. And I honestly believe the difference between an extraordinary life, however you want to define that, and this life like you talked about that, that goes down that dark path without hope is having one healthy adult relationship in addition to a relationship with the father. Mm. I think if you have those two things in your life, just, you know, man, you could take any hill you want. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. So we've, we've moved as we're sort of capstoning our conversation, John, from that thing that what do we need to know about you? And that quickly led to kind of the revival concept and reintroducing us to the Lord's Prayer for a here and now mindset and returning to the names of those friends, John and Jim and Clark. And is that what their names were? John? Yep. John, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff, Clark. And I, yeah. I mentioned, I did mention Jimmy too. He was yeah. Jim head. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you're at 20% of really getting to know your neighbors. It's time for us to all be on our knees and to go be fishers of men and women for Jesus Christ. And let that revival, that great awakening 
happen. I too agree with you, John. I think mm -hmm. it, it's happening, but we're the ones that have to make it happen through the movement of the Holy Spirit and through the work that you do. You are stirring the Holy Spirit within us, John. We're forever grateful to you. Thank you, Cheryl.